0: Please rise. Court is now in session.
1: All rise. All rise.
2: Is It Legal Too? A regular look at the legal system and you. A special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
3: And I'm Farrah Fight.
2: We're going to talk about history today.
3: About a series of lawsuits filed long ago by people seeking their freedom. Yep, you heard me right. Freedom. And the importance of those lawsuits
2: today. One of our guests is Judge David Mason of St. Louis, who led the effort to build a Freedom Suits Memorial. It was unveiled in June outside the St. Louis Civil Courts Building, and it honors courageous black people who sued for their freedom in the 1800s, and they were helped by equally courageous lawyers, judges, and jurors.
3: Our other guest is Krista Moss, an assistant United States attorney in the Civil Division of the Western District of Missouri. She helped organize continuing legal education programs that include the Millie Project. That's a play that has been turned into a film telling the story of Millie Sawyers, A Springfield woman who was a slave, she sued for her freedom three times, the last in southwest Missouri's Greene County, where she finally won. Welcome to our show, Krista and
4: Judge Mason. Thank you. Uh,
2: Thank you so much. First, a little background for folks who might not be familiar with where Missouri was before the Civil War. Uh, Our population before the Civil War was about 1.2 million, and 9.7% of that population was enslaved. It worked out to 114,941 people. There were 24,320 slaveholders in Missouri before the Civil War. 13% of Missouri families had at least one slave, and the slaves in the 1860 census were given a monetary value. Those slaves were worth $44.2 million. In four of our counties, more than 30% of the population was enslaved. Howard County was at 37.1%. In 33 of our 114 counties, at least 10% of the population was enslaved. 12.7% of Greene County's population was enslaved at a time that Millie sued for her freedom. Let's start the questions with uh, with you, Judge. Uh, let's talk about the freedom suits. What drew you to look into the freedom suits and to take these steps to make sure people knew about them?
1: Well, I was initially drawn in because of my role as a teacher of trial advocacy. I... Teacher WashU, and I teach, uh, you know, some lawyers generally speaking here and there, and I was uh, truly curious: to what kind of trial lawyer was successful in taking the case of Harriet and Dred Scott to a jury of twelve white men, who were all property owners, no doubt in some cases they owned some slaves themselves, and actually win that jury trial. I wanted to know what was said, that kind of thing. So I looked at the original file and, and then learned that, of course, they did not keep a complete record of what the speeches were, things like that. But it was about that time that we discovered all of these other files, hundreds, hundreds of files that had just simply been stored in the old Democrat building where we kept all our old files, because the clerk had begun this process of cleaning out the place and you know, because we were going to have to store stuff in a different area. And the files were discovered. And I began to realize, you know, this this is incredible. A lawyer named Matheny Sestrick had the same feeling. He wrote a book about it called 57 Years. And what I learned was for a period of 57 years, St. Louis Courts actually opened the courthouse door to what was the lowest rung of society in the in this city at the time, enslaved people. Opened the courthouse door to allow them to sue for the civil right to freedom. And I say civil right because under the law that existed at the time, it was the once free, always free standard. So if somebody was free at any point in time, anywhere else, then they automatically were free in Missouri. And that's what a lot of these lawsuits were about, because at that period of time, it was not unusual for slave owners to take their slaves with them as assistants or helpers when they would go to other states and do business. But often that business would take a while, and the Missouri courts were basically holding that if a slave was taken into a free state, kept in that free state long enough to establish what would be that normal that state's normal. Time to become a resident, then bam, at that point in time, that slave became free. And if they were returned to Missouri by the slave owner, they had a civil right to freedom, which they then go in court to court to sue on. And that's why, you know, we often refer to these as perhaps the original civil rights suits in this country and the lawyers who represented them as the original civil rights lawyers. Because you can't get more basic than your civil right to freedom. So I, I thought this was just incredible that we were doing this because I knew enough about American society at that time to know that the whole concept of the slave suing the slave owner was in huge parts of the country and just something that would make heads explode. You know, this is not... The, and it was And in Missouri, that attitude persisted. That's one reason why merely suffered the way she did after being freed. is that there were people who they weren't going to tolerate this at all. Mm -hmm. So that added even more to how impressed I was with the slaves who were courageous enough to go to court, knowing what the horrendous result could be. And and for the listener, I, I said the results included being sold to plantation owners in Louisiana and Mississippi where conditions of slavery were very harsh, and that is in fact where the phrase being sold down the river came from. And of course, being severely beaten. In fact, many judges had to take custody of a slave while the slave was suing in order to make sure that the slave wasn't killed wow. by a slave owner. So it was it was, you know, not a casual thing to do to file for the civil right to freedom at that time the risks were incredible, not only to the person who filed the lawsuit, but to the children. And this is especially important to know that there was a lot of women, mostly women, that were filing these suits. Because if a woman won her freedom, her children won freedom as well. So with that much at risk, and with the, the judges and lawyers who were involved taking this on, I felt this was an honorable aspect of Missouri history. You know, we were tearing down all these statutes that really were memorializing wrong things and the wrong side of history. And I presented to my colleagues, that this is an opportunity for us to really go into our history here in St. Louis and honor the right things we were doing and the courageousness you know, not just simply the slave as hapless victim, which in you know, and that was true. There's truth to that, but there's also that courageous slave that would escape, and frankly, it made me quite proud of them all. I started referring to myself very often as a slave descendant, because I I wore that as a badge of honor, and. I wanted to give voice to these hundreds of individuals who went into our court and fought for their freedom you know, in the courts, not always successful of course, but very often successful. My colleagues agreed, they unanimously approved the memorial, but they said, you know, okay Dave, can't use any state funds, I don't know how you're going to get it done, good luck. And I said to them at the time, I understood that because I knew that this would not be a successful endeavor unless the bar decided to pull its resources and make this a gift to the people of the city of St. Louis. Well, that's that's what happened. It took a long time. A lot of people had to be informed, much as many of the listeners right now are being informed. They had to see that this buried aspect of our cities in our state's history needed to be honored. And in fact, after these files begin to come out, and we begin to do our work, and there was more news. I noticed there was an explosion amongst historians, shows of articles and books about this era and the suits. So it's kind of like, you know, new undiscovered territory for particularly historians who cover the history of slavery in America or pre-civil rights America. But in any event, so, you know, took years. You know, put together a good core of people. An attorney named Paul Vanker was our chair. Lynn Ann Vogel, who had who had previously been the president of the Missouri Bar Association, were powerful leaders. Former Mayor Francis Slade also joined the steering committee. And I, I bought them so, we need gravitas and fundraising because I'm not allowed to go raise a down. <laughs> you know. And, and they took it on. And. Really start to gear up their, their resources and their connections. And one day I went to a meeting at the Corner and Block and I said, it looks like this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I hope you've have had a chance to see it. It is indeed one of the most beautiful memorials in any city. And at the base, all the names of the plaintiffs, including Millie. Mm-hmm. And Dred and Harry Scott are there to be found. Everybody's name is now called out loud on that memorial. Is that just the people who filed the suits or the people who won? The people who filed. Because every person engaged in a courageous act by going into court for their civil rights.
3: And I just wanna share with our listeners, we have information about the dedication of the memorial and a news story with photos so if you can't make it to St. Louis right away to see this in person which we highly encourage you to do you can visit news.mobar.org to read about the dedication see photos of this beautiful memorial
1: and if you have to be in town it's okay to take pictures of your family around it just getting this done there've been folks that went by there and you know after they got in got married they Took wedding pictures yeah. in front of the memorial, but yeah, it's you know, it's it's the people's now, yeah. and uh, the people seem to be enjoying it.
3: I wanted to ask, we've mentioned Millie's particular suit, and you highlighted other freedom suits. How many freedom suits are we talking about here? Was it a dozen or hundreds? oh, gracious,
1: say over three hundred, and uh, we aren't absolutely sure we have every plaintiff's name. So if you look at the memorial you'll see that the, the very last line, it says, and we also honor those who are not named here, or worse to that effect, mm-hmm. because we know that uh, there may be people who, who filed. Well, quite frankly, from what I can see, the people who filed were killed. They vanished all of a sudden, mm-hmm. or they filed and they were immediately sold down south in retaliation for that filing. And so the re- recording isn't quite as clear. But we know that that kind of thing was occurring.
2: From the historical standpoint of a historian, would this be rather fertile research ground for people in the other counties in the state of Missouri to be digging into these old courthouse records to see if there were similar suits, not just in St. Louis, which was the center of population, (laughs) but I know there were other suits in some other counties, Green County and Boone County had one, for example, that I'm familiar with. But... Is this something that we ought to be digging around in the old courthouse files yes, in a lot of other counties in Missouri?
1: Without a question, without question, particularly Jackson County, because of the Kansas. In mm-hmm. fact, I've heard nothing of files being discovered. That doesn't mean that that's not true, but uh, I would think, given, but you know, you don't know what clerks did with those files after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We just happen to have a clerk in St. Louis who undertook their duty to maintain records, whether they were angry over the results of the Civil War or not. They were going to just, you know, maintain records, and they did so. Yeah. There may have been other counties that, you know, threw the records out after the Civil War because they wanted to eliminate that history. I don't know. But it yeah. seems like Boone County would be a county where that should exist. And also, forgot which county Hannibal is in, but given the proximity to free state as well, it's it's possible. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely think that uh, those clerks may want to do some digging. They might find some interesting cases.
3: You've highlighted the immense courageousness and tenacity that these slaves who filed for their freedom had to have in order to even attempt this process. How did those freedom suits work? Is it something that they would go and attempt to file on their own, or did they have lawyers representing them in this process?
1: Well, you know, there were a number of lawyers in the St. Louis area that were willing to take these. In many cases, they were sort of part-time lawyers. They had some sort of business, but they, the sort of practice of law wasn't their primary source of income. Some lawyers took it on as a badge of honor to, to handle these cases. Uh, and word we get around in the black community, in the in the free black community, and there was, I should add, a lot of interaction sometimes between slaves and free blacks, because slave owners would often make money by renting their slaves out, and so they would be out in the community or they would be out running errands, and many would have relatives that were free, and so people would hear about the lawyers who were willing to do this. Stories would be told. They would get back to the lawyers. And the next thing, you know, clandestine meetings would occur. And then, you know, lawyers would file suit. They had to have affidavits of their plaintiff. And they would go into court with these affidavits and file. And then they would subsequently, in what we now call discovery, gain affidavits or sworn statements if they had to of people who were no longer in the area, particularly people who were in the free state who would swear That, yes, this particular slave was here for 60 days or whatever amount of time. And then, of course, there would often be people who could be reached locally. They weren't very far across the river in Illinois who would come in and testify at trial. So there were trials where depositions were read to jurors and live witnesses would appear. Now, the interesting thing is the slaves could never go into court and testify now, I point that out because we have a, the artist put in a, and he knew what he was doing. He put in a very symbolic center on this work. And you will see a lawyer asking questions of what appears to be a black woman on the stand. All right. And a woman was picked because I told you it was essentially women who was filing these lawsuits. Now, that is artistic symbolism. Because the artist knew that the women weren't brought in to testify, but it was sort of like the symbol of going into court and fighting for the civil rights of herself and her children. And so, when you see that, and it seems incongruous with what you know about history, that was the, what the artist did, and we we went along with that. Uh, we gave the artist free reign, quite frankly. The artist had done a great deal of research on his own. He knew exactly what he wanted to portray, which really made him very attractive for us as the artist that we wanted to give the commission to. That was part of what he wanted to do. So, you know, in any event, getting back to the trial itself, once it was all filed, it was a typical jury trial. Lawyers would get in and put forth their evidence. The judge would be presiding. The judge would give instructions to the jury when the evidence was done. And the thing that I kind of really respected by those judges, I call them my professional ancestors, is that they gave instructions that really held to the law that told the jury, if you find that this slave was indeed in a free state for this amount of time, you must enter a verdict freeing that slave. And I'm sure there were some jurors who chose to not follow the law, but there was obviously 130 or so that did follow the law. And that too was something that I, I just felt interesting about St. Louis and St. Louis people that because there weren't, there were a lot of places in the country the law wouldn't matter. You know, it just would not matter. You just simply don't get in between a white man and his mastery over his slave, it's not supposed to happen. And that's essentially what Justice Taney said in the Judd Scott case, but we'll get into that if you have questions.
2: We'll get into the Millie project specifically a little bit later on. But in terms of her trials, she had two trials in St. Louis and lost. Then she went to Greene County and she won. What do you know about her trial, first in St. Louis, why she didn't succeed while others did, and then when she went to Greene County, why she succeeded and probably many others did not. What makes her case so unusual that it turned out, in terms of a victory in court for her at least, or do we know enough about the specifics of her suits?
4: So I personally don't know all of the history behind the different suits in St. Louis, but what I do know is that in her lawsuit that she brought in Greene County in Springfield, The archivist, Connie Yen, who pulled up the old court record documents related to her lawsuit, they're very, very short. And she could tell just from that very short order written by the judge, you know, that there wasn't a lot of information as to what kind of evidence was presented. But what we do know is what we can see in that order, that she had made the case that she needed to make exactly like what Judge Mason has described. And for those reasons, he was in the position to make the determination that she had proved her case and that she was going to be a free woman. So I I don't know all of the details around the St. Louis case. It's very interesting that she brought the case twice in St. Louis and wasn't successful and moved to a different part of the state and made the same case and was able to earn her freedom that way. What's interesting is that what we do know about many of the different freedom suits is they were not shy about going around and and finding witnesses to present the evidence that they needed. I find this very interesting especially given the fact that, you know, as attorneys in today's age, we are constantly strategizing about what is the best litigation strategy to have? What evidence do I need? What experts do I need to talk to? And it can be a very stressful process trying to figure out what is the best way to build my case so that I can be successful. And to think of these women who were pursuing something that they very passionately and desperately wanted to prove without any legal education, without any legal background, but to be able to do that and successfully, you know, earn the thing that they wanted most—the the freedom, the remedy to the to the very very small jurisprudence of law that they had—to be able to win that and not have the kind of experience that seasoned lawyers have when they are walking into court and trying to present a case to a jury—it's um, it's very inspiring to know that they could do that despite not having the same kind of tools. And to do it again after you've lost twice, to do it again is pretty inspiring.
2: It's kind of surprising to me because our first constitution in 1820 forbade forbade free slaves and mulattoes from coming into the state. Congress refused to recognize that constitution until Missouri passed a resolution saying they would not enforce that provision. So, it seems to me that with that kind of feeling in 1820 and 21, when we joined the Union, to move to freedom suits in the quantity that you folks are talking about, there's a major change culturally in Missouri.
1: One reason for that, St. Louis was, I guess you could say, political confluence, much like we are a confluence of rivers. Mm -hmm. St. Louis had a, a strong abolitionist population as well as a strong slave owning population. We were very, very, we meaning as a group, I guess you could say we were almost ambivalent when it came to the Civil War. There wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm and there were many Missourians who fought for the North as well as a Missouri unit that fought for the South. And St. Louis was the, 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 the centerpiece of that mixture. So, you know, you had people who really weren't that thrilled with the idea of slavery. It wasn't uh, inculcated in their hearts as something that ought to occur. And I think that made a huge difference in terms of the outcomes of some of these these cases. But obviously, as uh, you noted, it was still a a slave owning city as well. Uh, But there was a mixture of people. Like I said, there was a, a population of free Blacks. And in some of the businesses, there was some interaction with white customers, particularly those who were great at shooting horses, especially. So, you know, that, that probably ate away at some of the racial elitism that was occurring at the time. And by that, I mean this feeling that blacks ought to be subjected to slavery. They ought to be the servant class. And I think that 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 made a difference because those folks are going to the jury pool and, and probably had a little bit of a mix of thinking sometimes in these jurors, which made it uh, sort of a centerpiece. A lot of people who, well, there's some of those people who were in those suits weren't necessarily Missouri slaves, but were brought here, had been in a free state on the way here, And when they got here, they learned of these uh, suits and learned of the connection to a lawyer and would sue for their freedom. Basically, you know, you you were a slave owner, and you spent a lot of time in a free state, you bought your slave into Missouri at your own risk. Because if a a way was made to have a, a lawsuit, then that's how Missouri law was. Until, of course, our Supreme Court became padded with people who had a distaste for Blacks being able to sue for this civil right to freedom.
3: That's what I wanted to ask you about next. You mentioned the Dred Scott case earlier. Can you walk us through that case and explain what it did for freedom suits?
1: Well, Harriet and Dred Scott's case was not not at all untraditional. I mean, it was basically the straightforward. We were taken to a free state, held there for a certain amount of time, and were therefore entitled to be free when we were brought back to Missouri. That was their case. They took it to a jury. The jury agreed. They won their first trial. The Sanfords appealed, and the timing was great for them. I hate to use the word great for them, but you get my point. Because the two judges on the Missouri Supreme Court who were, you know, strongly wanted to adhere to the once free, always free rule, and had articulated that much in any number of opinions were no longer in the court. They had been replaced by pro-slavery judges. And so Jared and Harry Scott walked into a Supreme Court that had already made a decision that they were going to eliminate the once-free, always-free standard. And they did so. So they lost in the Supreme Court. Well, the lawyers had the interesting idea of, well, let's go to the federal court because a lot of the laws that supported once we were always free rose from Missouri Compromise, rose from federal law. So let's go into federal court. Well, that's when the issue came up. Can a slave sue in federal court? You know, because you had the beginnings of the Article 3, Article 3 of the Constitution, and the Article 3 courts, which are the federal courts, was that, you know, you had to be a citizen to sue, go into the court. Now, what's interesting is American jurisprudence already had situations where non-citizens were going into court, most particularly international owners of businesses businesses doing work in the United States, suing in contract, right? So this was, you know, plenty of non-citizens were going into court, and even Native Americans were going into court. Roger Taney, Justice Taney, in the Dred Scott case, tried to dance around that and not, oops, I'm sorry, I explained how he danced around that later. But, so this is the backdrop. Nonetheless, the federal court uh, said, yeah, there's a standing problem. So did the uh, Court of Appeals. And the Supreme Court, who, you know, and, and you're a lawyer, you know, you would think, would not take it. They didn't have to take this case. You know, so it's resolved, but... Justice Roger Taney wanted to be the hero of the United States by eliminating the huge debate over slavery with the fiat of a Supreme Court decision. So he gets his colleagues to take the case, and he wrote an opinion that shows exactly where he was before he heard a word from the litigants, because. He based his opinion on any number of things that never came up in the court below. And for the citizens listening, appellate courts are not supposed to add their own facts. They're supposed to handle their appeal based on the record that's in front of them. Well, in this particular case, Roger Cheney decided to add his own facts. Now, the facts that he chose to add, if you could take every rumor, Long held belief, something preached from the pulpit, any negative thing said about black people. And he decided those are facts. So he talks about how the English, you know, they uh, enslaved us and they sold us all across the world. And when they, they bought us here, there was never intent that we would be anything more than just chattel property. And he said that essentially. Believe it or not, these are not his exact words, but these are close to him, that for all practical purposes, it was a good thing that this low order of people be kept in slavery for their own benefit. It was a good thing for them. That they, in fact, were never designed or intended to be equal to white people and therefore could never have the same rights and equality in this country. Under no circumstances could they be citizens, and went so far as to say under no circumstances could a Negro have a right that a white man was bound to respect.
3: And this is all being said by one of the country's justices.
1: Oh, and Uh five of them, because this was a Supreme Court decision. Now, this is extremely important because in the context of American society at the time, illiteracy was still pretty much at least half the norm, maybe a little bit more. People didn't get their information directly from reading about it, for the most part. They got it from uh, what people told them in newspapers, from the local politicians, uh, what the preacher said on Sunday, you know, what they heard from cousins, whatever, relatives. And that's pretty much how information traveled in the United States. There, Everyone knew that the Supreme Court was the ultimate arbiter of what our Constitution meant. So when the Supreme Court told all of these folks across the country who had all of these rumors and things like that and family tales and innuendo and prejudice and bigoted feelings that all this was true, it was true. You don't have to really worry about whether it's true or not. It's true. You see a black person, a so-called Negro walking down the street, you can appropriately say to yourself that's somebody ought to be a slave. That's somebody ought to be able to buy. That's somebody who can never be equal to me as a matter of our nation's law. That's a powerful declaration. Anybody who doesn't think for a moment that that did not empower the Confederacy doesn't know humanity that gave everyone who was pro-slavery a powerful feeling, and in fact, Abraham Lincoln, who was a lawyer at the time, wrote that he went to bed with Illinois being a free state, he woke up with it being a slave state, because the nature of the opinion was clearly going to constitutionalize slave ownership. The way that the right to own a gun is a constitutional right, the right to own a slave. And of course, with the Constitution right, then no state could prevent it, therefore making us a slave nation. Now, that's what was going on with the Dress God case. That's why it was a major trigger, somebody will suggest, the trigger to the Civil War. So everything that Roger Tenney thought he was doing, eliminating the slavery issue by making, okay, we're just a slave nation, obviously backfired in one of the most horrendous ways in all the history of mankind. This
2: sounds like a good time for a segment we call Ease" with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Legal Legalese, that means we asked Judge Wolfe to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge?
0: Legalese. There are two aspects of today's fascinating discussion that tie this topic to contemporary issues. First is the role of women in these slave freedom suits. Second is how we read and understand the Constitution, specifically the idea of original intent or originalism, which has captured the imagination of six of the nine current justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. First, the women. Most of the freedom suits were filed on behalf of women. In fact, the case we call Dred Scott should more accurately be called Harriet and Dred Scott versus Sanford. Many accounts of these suits emphasize the lawyers all men. There were no women lawyers. The judges, all men, again, and even the jurors, again, all men. But the driving force of these suits were the enslaved women beginning before Missouri was a state. So why were most suits, in the hundreds in fact, brought on behalf of women? Legal scholar Leah Vandervelde in her book Mrs. Dred Scott opined that Harriet Scott was the driving force behind the suit, but Professor Vandervelli did not know exactly why. She writes, Harriet fit the profile of freedom litigant better than did Dred, since most freedom suits in St. Louis were filed by women. Men could run. They could take the risk of depending on their own wits, physical stamina, and speed. Running with children was doomed to fail. Most of the women, like Harriet, were mothers with children. Women frequently invoked as a reason for suit that a sale threatened to separate them from their children. Filing suit preserved the maternal tie during its proceedings. Close quote. Millie, the enslaved woman discussed in our program, fought her legal fight in Springfield, Missouri. A long way to the east was Illinois, and at some distance to the west was Kansas. Too far to run. She could fight legally, and her brave efforts inspire us today. She won her freedom in 1836 but unfortunately she was severely beaten after that. Now to the opinion of the United States Supreme Court in Dred Scott and its possible relevance today. When Harriet and Dred Scott won their case in the state court in St. Louis, their enslaver appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which reversed the case, ending a long string of cases that held in favor of freedom. After the Missouri Supreme Court decision, Harriet and Dred Scott got new lawyers who filed a federal case against John Sanford a New York resident who succeeded his sister, Irene Emerson, as the enslaver of the Scott family. They used the law that authorizes federal courts to hear cases between citizens of different states. The Scots claimed that they were citizens of Missouri and that Sanford was a citizen of New York. After losing in the St. Louis federal court, the Scots' lawyers appealed directly to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the issue of slavery was very much in the national controversy in Missouri as well as the country as a whole. Chief Justice Taney's opinion for the court in the Dred Scott case is filled with racist observations that frankly are an embarrassment. His majority opinion held that the Scots, as slaves of African descent, could not be citizens of the United States or of any state, and therefore the court had no jurisdiction to hear their claim. Taney noted correctly that the opinion was starkly in contrast with the idealistic principles of the Declaration of Independence, the Chief Justice met that contradiction by saying, quote, It is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. For if the language as understood on that day would embrace them, the conduct of the distinguished men who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted, Close quote. Accordingly, the court's opinion said that Congress had no power to raise to the rank of a citizen anyone born in the United States who, quote, from birth or parentage by the laws of the country, belonged to an inferior and subordinate class, period. close quote. The court inferred that the United States Constitution, which does not refer to free blacks, therefore explicitly meant to exclude from its protection even those black persons who were free when the Constitution was ratified and took effect. The court went on to say that a state may give rights to, quote, free Negroes and mulattoes, but that does not make them citizens of the states and still less of the United States. And the provision in the Constitution giving privileges and immunities in other states does not apply to them, close quote. The court thus concluded that blacks never could become state citizens allowed to sue in the federal courts under the diversity of citizenship law. Even though the court said it had no jurisdiction, the court nevertheless said it was necessary to avoid confusion, to go on and decide a number of issues, including taking away the power of Congress to forbid slavery in the territories and the new states. Legal scholars and justices alike over the years have pronounced the Dred Scott case as the worst decision in the Supreme Court's history. But I pose here a provocative question. On this question of citizenship and jurisdiction, did Chief Justice Taney and the majority get it right if you consider the idea of originalism or finding what the authors of the Constitution meant? In other words, did Taney's opinion correctly discern what the Founding Fathers intended when they wrote the Constitution? The originalism idea is that in order to understand the Constitution, We must explore the minds of the men who wrote the Constitution. Tawney's majority opinion does just that. Chief Justice Tawney cites, for example, the Second Amendment, which, as we know from recent cases, protects the right of citizens to keep and to bear arms. Tawney's opinion for the majority in Dred Scott said that to recognize blacks as citizens would give blacks the right to, quote, keep and carry arms wherever they went, close quote. Interestingly, the modern Supreme Court cited the Dred Scott case just last year when it decided a case on the right to keep and bear arms. Justice Clarence Thomas, writing for the court in New York Rifle and Pistol Association v. Gruen, said in June 2022, even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Referring to the court's opinion in Dred Scott versus Sanford, Thomas said, quote, Chief Justice Taney offered what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States. If blacks were citizens, Taney fretted, they would be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens, including the right to keep and carry arms wherever they went, close quote. Thus, even Chief Justice Taney recognized, although unenthusiastically in the case of blacks, that public carry was a component to the right to keep and bear arms, a right free blacks were denied in pre-Civil War America. The problem is, and was, that the public and our leaders considered the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision to be law, including its statements that Congress had no power to exclude slavery from the new territories and that Congress could not abolish slavery in the states. In the context of the Times, Was war the only means by which slavery question could be decided? In the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, two years before Lincoln won the presidency, his opponent, Stephen A. Douglas, argued for popular sovereignty, a doctrine that slavery should be decided on a state-by-state basis. Does that remind you of any constitutional right recently abolished by the United States Supreme Court? History remembers Abraham Lincoln's great house-divided speech in June 1858. It was about Dred Scott. Recall Lincoln's famous quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and that this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. War indeed may have been the only answer. In today's program, Judge Mason says the U.S. Supreme Court should erase the Dred Scott decision from our legal records. That, of course, is unlikely, especially because the current Supreme Court just cited the Dred Scott case last year in the New York Guns case. So if we forget the Dred Scott case and its contribution to causing the Civil War, we might forget that slavery was the main reason we had the war. And if we forget that, we will be back to considering the war as simply a lost cause in the battle for states' rights. This is Mike Wolfe, your Man About Missouri. Legal ease.
2: Did the Dred Scott case kill the freedom suits?
1: Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah There was still some thereafter, because there was still some who wanted to until they saw something that kind of eliminated the law itself. But there still were a few suits thereafter, but not very many. I want to say fourteen. It pretty much ended it.
4: And you know what's really fascinating about that is the fact that you had this area of the country, really the central area of the country where all these free states and slave states were experiencing these high volumes of freedom suits. And they were, those courts were creating this law and this precedent where this was something that could happen under their own state laws. And then, of course, you have the Supreme Court decision, just exactly like how you've described Judge Mason, and somehow... The jurisprudence, right, the way that the law is working for the people who are pursuing it, right, all of a sudden it's changed. It's a very fascinating thing. It's a nuance to think about how powerful just one decision in our country can change the course of rights and justice and access to be able to litigate something. So it's very
3: fascinating to think that they won their freedom at the very first stage of that process, and then for it to shift through the appeals to a point where not only it says they can't be free, no one
2: yeah, can exactly. be
3: free or seek their freedom. Sure.
2: So Civil War starts. Abraham Lincoln puts together the Emancipation Proclamation. What
1: good was that? Well... He made it clear where he stood, which then, of course, Jefferson Davis made it clear where he stood. (laughs) And, uh, And, you know, we went from there. 600 horribly killed young men later is clarified with, as you know, in Reconstruction, a turnover in some of the governments. And then 13th and 14th Amendment were passed. Now, this is interesting thing about American society and the effect of the 13th and 14th Amendments. Those Amendments really eliminated what we call in the law, the holding of Dred Scott. See, the holding of the Supreme Court in Dred Scott case was really quite straightforward. Black people can never be citizens and therefore no right to vote or any of the other privileges of citizenship that the Constitution gives, right? 13th and 14th Amendment, said black people are citizens. Everybody born, you're a citizen. And said, you cannot take people's constitutional rights away based on their status of having been a slave. or I mean, all that was cleared up. It was just holy. It's kind of like if you, if the Pope were to issue a, a long edict, a spiritual edict, as to how Christians should live and worship, and that the last thing said, You can have Saturday Sabbath instead of Sunday Sabbath. It doesn't change anything else. All right? Then all the other stuff is still going to be inculcated within the practice of the church. Well, guess what happened? All the stuff in the Dred Scott case that the Supreme Court said was okay, was real and was true, that was never erased. That decision was never set aside. Even to this day? Even to this day. So what do you subsequently subsequently have? You have black codes, which were based upon some of the eating. I mean, you can see what Taney said. You see it reflected in black codes. You see what Taney said reflected in Jim Crow laws. Taney said stuff in that opinion about black people not worthy of socializing culturally with whites in any way. I mean, he was very clear. What did Jim Crow laws say? Everybody has to be segregated. Supreme would even double down and place it against Ferguson with the nice phrase, separate but equal. And even that was just related to public facilities. Separate was given yet another stamp of approval by the U.S. Supreme Court. Is it any surprise that school segregation remained? That there was a fight by the time we got into the 50s and 60s? That there would be those in the South thinking that Being segregated was the the culturally appropriate thing, the correct thing, the 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 almost religious thing that had to occur in this nation. Any surprise that there were millions and millions and millions of white people throughout the South who believed that to be what needed to occur? So yeah, we had some real fights in this country, in places that were kind of interested, the Boston. They had bigger fights than in my hometown of Nashville, which, you know, segregation ended up becoming interestingly seamless. I always thought that was interesting about America. But anyway, that issue aside, the Supreme Court decision remains on the books today. Our Supreme Court does have a common law right to set that decision aside and hold it for naught. And they have a common law right to order it depublished, which means any further printings of West Law casebooks, it won't be in there. The Supreme Court could wash itself of its original sin and address God's decision. Has anybody ever filed a lawsuit to bring that about? Hasn't happened yet. So he says with a slight <laughs> smile on his face. I know, I was just <laughs> going to say, I'm getting a vibe.
3: <laughs> I want to turn now to one of these specific cases. We mentioned Millie Sawyers at the beginning of the program, and we've talked about her and her cases briefly, but I want to go into the play that is also now a film called The Millie Project. And Krista, I know that you actually integrated this play with continuing legal education for lawyers. Why do you think this look at a historical freedom suit story is relevant to today's legal profession, and the lawyers practicing law?
4: Well, I think it's like we discussed before. Looking at the history of Freedom Suits, and particularly Millie's story, because it was relevant to the area where we did the initial continuing legal education class in Springfield in Greene County, it was a story that happened there in the streets where We all walk around and had no idea that something like that had happened there. And especially for lawyers, I think to have an opportunity to hear about something relevant to our profession, right? A legal proceeding in one of the very first court proceedings, right, when Greene County had become an actual courtroom. To hear about those types of historical events, I think, shapes the way that we think about how the profession has grown, where it's come from, and to know history in a way that we probably never learned in school. I mean, I know for when I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we hardly ever learned about the race riots. You know, it was just kind of like one page in a history book. You know what happened. You know it was bad. But you didn't hear the personal stories. You didn't hear the details of businesses that were completely ransacked and how that affected their family. So, you know, to become a lawyer and then to hear about this story about Millie Sawyers, who was able to go into a court system and earn her freedom in a time when doing that was not really something that the rest of the community wanted, expected, to know that she could do that is just mind-boggling, for lack of a better word, right? So to hear her story as a lawyer, I thought was incredible. And I wanted to be able to to share this history in a very fascinating way. So The Millie Project is an incredible theatrical production that uses Millie Sawyer's story and interweaves it through African-American history from the time of slavery until the present day. And I, I think it's a really impactful way for lawyers to not only see something about their history in a place where they currently reside, you know, streets that they walked on, but to, to see how that is interwoven through history, how, how Millie's story is actually informing us in all these different things that continue to happen in race relations, how something way back in the 1800s is still kind of letting us know That these issues are real issues, the things that are happening in humanity, that the wrongs and the rights, the injustices, they continue to interweave themselves throughout our history. So I think it's important for us as lawyers to know when we listen to this history and we look at this history and we consider how it is interwoven through different points in time, how do we take that in our practice? how do we consider what we need to do as lawyers to continue fighting for the Millies, to continue bringing those types of injustices to light and doing the work that we as lawyers are capable of doing in making sure those types of injustices don't continue to persist.
2: We touched on her story just briefly a few minutes ago. But give us, give us the story of Millie. What happened to her as she went along and what ultimately we know happened,
4: Right. So, again, as I said earlier, I, I, I'm not the historian, so I don't know what happened to her when she left St. Louis. But when she got to Springfield, she had a master, I believe his name was Ivy. And the only other record other than the order from the judge that set her free that, that I am personally aware of um, are the pleadings in the lawsuit that discuss how he was abusive to her, beating her. And so she filed this freedom suit in Springfield in Greene County. And the court case, they believe, happened in the home of one of Springfield's founders at the time. Because, you know, they did not have a courthouse at that time. So to think that these proceedings were just happening in someone's home. It's like, come on into my living room. Right. And yeah, exactly. Would you like some tea or, I guess, coffee? Yeah, <laughs> So she brings this freedom suit. There is not a lot of documentation as to how the proceedings went. We know that at some point she was entrusted to another individual. I believe as Judge Mason described it, they allowed them to be rented or to provide service for someone else during this time of of the litigation. And for a year, at least, her case just kind of languished. We don't really know what happens during that time, why the case languished. But eventually she is able to earn her freedom. We don't know what evidence was presented, but we do know that this judge felt sympathetic for her, that the jury that they had believed what she said happened was true, that she had been free, lived, resided in a free state. And so she was freed. She won her freedom. And not long after that, she was mobbed by a group in the street, in the square. And for those of you who may not have ever been to Springfield, we have a historical square in the middle of the downtown area. And that is the place where we believe that she was when she was mobbed. Do we know who was involved in that mob attack? Was
3: it like led by her previous master or were people just really worried
4: now that she was going to be the symbol of freedom and lead to other freedoms. Yeah, so there actually there are even more court documents that they've unearthed that show these criminal proceedings, these charges against other individuals, some of who are also believed to be some of Springfield's founders, um, one of which was her master, leading this mob to assault her in the street. And we don't know what happened to Millie after that. There, of course, are no more records after these particular court cases. So we know that she won her freedom, and after that she, she suffered the price of the prejudice and the discrimination and the racism of the time. And despite earning her freedom, we don't know if she got to enjoy that or how she enjoyed it and where she went after that.
2: She was in the home of John Campbell, who was one of the founders of Springfield. Correct. And that's where the case was heard. Yes. It was in the
1: Campbell House. But and- she
3: would not have been allowed at that proceeding, is that correct?
4: I, I don't know for sure. Maybe Judge.
3: No, I, mean,
1: I, I wouldn't know how they would have handled okay. it uh, here. The circumstances being a little less formal than what was occurring in St. Louis. And in all honesty, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody killed the poor woman mm-hmm. and why everything just vanished. Because you're mixing not only race hatred, you're mixing vengeance, disappointment, anger, mm-hmm. all the things that we know as judges have been the basis for all kinds of crime. She probably didn't get out of town fast enough when she won her freedom. And it, it, it's, it's painful. I watched the Million Project and knowing what I know about how humanity was at that time, how Springfield was, which you know was not quite as legally regulated as uh, some of the other, say the Kansas City or St. Louis area, and how quite frankly easy it would have been to... Capture her, beat her in the middle of the street, and probably take her someplace and kill her. Cause yeah, that's just the way the world was at that other time.
2: Other than the court record, we know nothing about Millie Sawyers. It's just she shows up in the court records, and that's that's all we know of her life. Yeah. And and the subsequent beating and the mob action. Mobs were not unusual to go after either freed slaves or even sometimes those who spoke on behalf of freed slaves. That's you read Elijah Parish Lovejoy in St. Louis. Who the editor, who was a big abolitionist editor, who eventually uh, was killed by a mob that attacked him and his press? So, absolutely right. We we don't really understand how a lot of the emotions were 160 or 70 years ago.
1: The more I read, the more I say, (laughs) those who say that America is more divided now than it's ever been before, I say, you need to read a book (laughs) because yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, compared to back then this is wonderful we're singing <laughs> yeah. Kumbaya together right. yeah. <laughs> yeah despite all of yeah. our troubles that's right
3: Krista can you tell us a little bit about how these unearthed court documents about Millie and her cases
4: turned into a play yeah so the archivist Connie yen she found these documents and a reporter, for the Springfield Newsleader, I'm probably going to say his name incorrectly, Giacomo Bologna, he turned all of the work that had been unearthed by these documents into a really informative article in the Springfield Newsleader. And Kendra Chappelle, she is the director of the Millie Project, she read this article and was completely just astounded by what she was reading. So she gave it to her class, her advanced acting class at Willard High School. And they as young high school students were reading this article just kind of surprised that there was this history in a place that they grew up and they didn't really know and understand how something like that happened. And it kind of inspired them to research and just research it more. So Kendra started to create this theatrical production around Millie Sawyer's life. This was in 2018 when they read the article. And so at that time, as you know, there were many things happening in in race relations, a lot of things that were hitting mainstream media about police brutality and different things that were happening around the country. And it inspired them to just start digging deep into history in a way they never had before. And she had students coming to her class, to the advanced acting class, and staying after school, and they were spending hours looking up these court cases and reading about history and trying to understand the details and the nuance of things that they really had never spent that much time digging into. And at the end, they created this beautiful play, this very artistic, creative view, depiction of American history and weaving Millie's story in and out of it and just giving us something to consume in a way that we really haven't before. So that's how they created the Millie Project. I've had many people from
3: lawyers and judges and citizens who have either seen the play in person or watched the film version of that play now who said that it moved them. And I wanted to talk a little bit about The aspects of the play and the story, I know you talked about Millie's story being so inspiring, but what is it that you think about her human experience tied into history that has that impact on those who have participated or observed this play and production?
4: I think that there is something innate in all of us that when we hear about or see injustice, It really pulls at our heartstrings. It's like a gut punch, like that just seems so unjust and especially looking at it retrospectively. Right. Like we're looking at it in a time where that's obviously completely unacceptable to someone earn something right in a court. And because you're so mad about it, you you take your own action after the fact. So to see it right hundreds of years later, we just can't help but respond to that. And to see it and to feel like I don't want things like that to continue to happen into the future. So I think it invokes something in us that is only innate and natural for us to believe that we have the power and the tools to make sure that society doesn't do this anymore. And I think that's what she inspires. She inspires a resolve to utilize whatever tools that we have, you know, to pursue something even if there's going to be these dire consequences, even if we know that the outcome is risky, is dangerous, but to do it knowing that that is the right thing to do.
3: The young lawyer section of the Missouri Bar during the pandemic worked with Kendra to get a film version or a video version of the play to help continue continuing legal education programs featuring it. Why do you think that it is so important that this is used as a educational program specifically for young lawyers?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> there are a lot of things that the legal profession does that, quite frankly, are not super interesting, right? As we go to these continuing legal education courses, it's, you know, it's sometimes hard to pay attention or, you know, digest all the information that we're getting. Stay Um, awake. Yeah, stay awake. (laughs) And I think what is so great about the Millie Project is because it's so tangential to a lot of the things that we understand in the legal profession, it's a really creative way, a really engaging way to think about the law and to understand history. And so especially for young attorneys where we want something new. Like We we like technology. We like things that are different. To be able to utilize a theatrical production for continuing legal education is, I think, a much more impactful way to educate young attorneys. And I think that they probably find something more relatable to that than to just sit in a room and listen to someone, you know, talk about some legal concept for an hour, two hours a week.
2: But outside the legal profession, what kind of impact do you hope this has on just the general public, especially, again, young people who don't know a lot of this history? And I'm an old people, and I didn't know the story of Millie. So what, what kind of a reach do you hope this has or the general population, especially right now when we've got a lot of polarization in our country and some of it is racially oriented.
4: I mean, again, that is the beautiful thing about artistic endeavors, right? Music, like mm-hmm. music can inspire like a memory just from a few notes, right? So in the same way, anything that is artistic has a way to communicate to people in measures that just the spoken word cannot. When you have a conversation with someone and you disagree with something that they're saying, it's really hard maybe to move past just that conversation. But when you put someone, when you immerse them in an artistic experience, there may be something that they're viewing that they might not initially accept. But to continue watching something that is beautifully done, there's just no way that you can deny the impact that it has on you. We actually, the very first CLE that we collaborated with some of the local bar associations in Missouri to bring this theatrical production and to, and to make it into a continuing legal education program, we actually invited not just lawyers, but we invited their family members, their spouses, their significant others to come with them. And in my opinion, And I'm not biased because I was involved in helping produce the the CLE, but in my opinion, it was one of the most incredible CLEs that I had intended because not only were there lawyers there, there were people from the public, there were teachers, there were medical professionals, there were students. We held it at a college campus, so the president was there. It was just to have that collaboration of people and to hear all the different ways in which that particular production affected them and impacted them and the feedback that we got and to have it in a, in a place where it was more than just, you know, 30 lawyers or 50 lawyers who needed their CLE. It was a couple hundred people coming to see this theatrical production. I think that means that having something like the Millie Project is, it's not just inspiring, but it, it, it's a draw. Like people want to see something different. They don't want to just show up for someone to talk. Like, are interested in seeing something that is creative. It, it, it sparks curiosity, like what is this going to be about? What is the experience going to be? And so to use that mode to introduce historical things that people have never maybe really understood, I think it really expands their mind. And to really answer you know, the crux of your question, why is this important for the public? I think as we as we grow up and we go through school and we we listen to our history teachers teach us all the things that we're supposed to understand in 12 short years we miss some of the details that I think are important about humanity and realities and the thing outside experiences outside of ourselves because I think a lot of the divisiveness that we see today is because we have a hard time stepping out of our own experiences and our own realities. So to see a play like the Millie Project, which really walks you through history, to see how the timeline, and I'm getting ahead of myself because the Millie Project, if you haven't seen it, it walks Through the timeline. The actors are giving you years and dates and time when certain things are happening in juxtaposition when we understood certain rights should have been achieved, but really have not in comparison to the reality of the time. So to watch those actors, these very young actors, so passionately communicate to the audience that this is what was happening at this time and this is what these group of people were thinking about it and this is what these group of people were reacting to it and this is how it affected history and this is how it changed, you know, laws and statues and communities. To see it all in one fell swoop in a 45-minute production is just so impactful and I think that that the public who watch it are going to learn something that they really never understood before.
1: It is very good. I very much enjoy it. Excellent work.
4: Impressive, right, that high school students had a hand in creating something. And obviously under Kendra's direction, I mean, she's just a genius in the way that she created this play. Because it has the actors moving around the stage in kind of artistic ways, but pausing dramatically to to deliver an important line to you that you should understand. It's just, it's very impactful.
2: What, what do you think would be the reaction if, if our high schools showed this to their students?
4: You know, I think it would be wonderful for our high school students to see this. It doesn't mean that it will always be well-received, right? Just because we know that we do live in, unfortunately, this divisive social time. So there are always going to be people who look at history and are unable to accept the realities, unable to see the things that are important for us to learn as human beings on how we know where people came from and why that means where we need to go. But they're going to learn something. You know, if if they have the opportunity to see it, they're definitely going to learn something that probably they are not learning just from their history books. I
3: was just going (laughs) to say in the
4: Millie Project, one of the through lines, I think, is
3: who writes history. Yes. Um, Given the... What we've learned today, the history information that you've shared with our listeners, what is it that you hope that they take away from hearing these stories and perspectives of past Missourians who were seeking their freedom? What is it that you hope stays with them after hearing this conversation today?
1: Well, you know, I the thing that I really concerns me, about this kind of history, this, this actual history, is there too many labels put on it in advance? In all honesty, if you just showed the Millie Project film mm-hmm. in high schools all across the country, there would be no big deal other than the fact that high school kids will be told to understand that as they go through life, if they go through college, whatever, to understand that there's a lot of history that they don't necessarily get in their books. And to introduce them to the concept that this is a nation with a complicated history and a controversial one, but one that if they have an interest, it would be great to take the time to learn. You don't really need to take history and put any extra stuff on it. You know, it doesn't need any seasoning. It's kind of cooked up very well as is. And all you have to do is just put it out there and enlighten young people to the fact that uh, there's a lot more than perhaps one has time to teach in high school. Well, so many kids kids going to go to college and learn more and uh, and take an interest. And that's what we want to have in this country, a society of people who understand the depth of our history, who understand that there's probably a lot that's been left out, and as they grow and become citizens and talk more about what's left out, they'll just simply have a greater influence of what's put in rather than putting it into a a system where people are girded up before they hear a thing Mm -hmm. that, you know, something evil's been put upon them. History is just history. It's like drinking water. Every Bit of water we drink is like, you know, a million years old. You know, we drink it, it comes out, it goes up to the clouds, it comes down, we filter, it, we clean it, we drink it again. You know, there's no such thing as old or new water. There's no such thing as old or new history. It is what it is. And uh, it's up to us to understand that and help our children understand that there's just simply more to America. And quite frankly, it kind of makes America look better to me mm-hmm. that we are going through all of this and, and still holding together and all the different things that you know the Irish went through in New York and the Italians went through in Philadelphia and Native Americans went through and and so on and still the fabric holds.
4: Yeah I think I think to me I, I think what is really important for people to really take from Millie, the Millie Project, Freedom Suits, this memorial, is that there is always history that we do not understand and that we do not know, and that when we spend the time to to engage in that, we are going to become more enlightened. And that enlightenment is going to help us keep open minds that things are different. There's no such thing as black and white, right? There's no such thing as this is how it always is, and this is how it always will be. No, I, I think that it's important for people to learn. We must have an open mind. We must be willing to learn. We must be willing to acknowledge that there are things about our realities and our experiences that do not explain everything that's happening around us. And so to be able to reach outside of ourselves beyond you know what we think is the reality of life to understand that other people have a valid perspective based on their experiences and that history, who writes history, that is such a brilliant question to be interwoven throughout the Millie Project because it really challenges us to think, just because I have always known something, Taney, (laughs) just because Taney wrote a Supreme Court opinion that described what he believed the entire society should believe about a subset of people does that necessarily mean That is the be-all end all. So who writes history, I think is that is the answer to the question, mm-hmm. right? Like we all are responsible for history. We are all responsible for how it is going to continue to progress and to change and to not just be complacent with, what we think is the reality but to know that we're all learning we're all growing we we can all improve the way that we think about the world around us we can all continue to strive to overcome our differences and to hopefully be more loving towards one another I I think that that would be the hope of people like Kendra and the cast and Shirley Judge Mason that when you when you Highlight these points from history, that it just inspires people to, to know that, yes, things have been hard, they are hard, but we have come from a place where if we had stayed there, it would be dark, and we have not. We have continued to move, we have continued to, to better ourselves, and there is always hope that that bar can continue to climb.
2: This has been a tremendous program. I really want to thank you, Judge Mason and Krista, for being with us. This has just been terrific.
1: I've enjoyed every second of it.
4: Thank you so much for including us.
2: Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it.
3: Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more.
5: When you hear about the experience of people like Millie Sawyers and Dred Scott, You may ask why the framers of the Constitution did not address the issue of slavery and spare us these horrific circumstances. Why didn't the framers just abolish an institution as evil as slavery in the Constitution? The answer, as difficult as it may be to admit, is that we were not ready to take such a dramatic step at the time. Some of the framers owned slaves. Some of the framers who opposed the institution of slavery, nonetheless, owned slaves. Slavery was seen by many of those who attended the Constitutional Convention as essential for our economic survival, and they were not willing to give it up. In those few instances in which the Constitution did address slavery, it did not distinguish the framers as advocates of liberty for all. Article 1, Section 2 provided that representation and taxation would be calculated based on the number of free persons and three-fifths of all other persons. Although slavery is not mentioned, these other persons, who would be counted as a fraction of a human being, were slaves. Article 1, Section 9 prohibited Congress from banning the importation of slaves until 1808. While it is true that Congress would be able to ban the importation of slaves after 20 years, the Constitution extended explicit protection for the importation of slaves for decades. Finally, Article 4, Section 2 required that runaway slaves be returned to their owners. This Fugitive Slave Clause placed the weight of the Constitution behind the idea that those who sought their freedom should be returned to their oppressors. These were some of the most dubious provisions included in the Constitution. One thing that should be noted is that Article 5 provided a mechanism for amendment of the Constitution, and some of the framers hoped that this process would be used someday to abolish slavery. This would ultimately occur in 1865 with the 13th Amendment. It is tempting to condemn the framers for the way they dealt with slavery. For those inclined to do so, it must be recalled that the reason the framers came together for the Constitutional Convention was not to address the important moral issues of the day. Instead, it was to develop a new governing document that would hold the nation together at a point at which the country teetered on the brink of collapse. After we gained our independence from England in 1781, our first system of government, the Articles of Confederation, was so flawed that the new United States of America quickly fell into crisis. The framers came together to save the nation. That was the priority. Holding the country together. The framers saw every other issue, no matter how significant, as being of secondary importance. This was especially true for an issue like slavery, which was almost certain to divide those who attended the Constitutional Convention. The framers likely believed that attempting to address the issue of slavery would have resulted in delegates fleeing Philadelphia and leaving the hope of a new system of government in tatters. Did the choices the framers made at the Constitutional Convention allow an evil institution to continue? Yes. Did their choices create a situation that denied people like Millie Sawyers and Dred Scott the basic rights and freedoms that others enjoyed Simply because of the circumstances of their birth and the color of their skin? Yes. Maybe other questions should be asked. If the framers had attempted to abolish slavery in their new constitution, would the United States of America have continued? If this new nation had collapsed, would the lives of Millie Sawyers and Dred Scott have been any better? By taking the actions for which we criticize them today, did the framers maintain this experiment known as the United States of America and create a constitution that could one day be amended to abolish slavery? While the framers of the constitution should be held accountable for the moral deficiency of their choices, we should also recognize that they created the potential for change by establishing a government that would be accountable to its people.
3: There are some resources you might wanna check out and explore on this topic and more. You can also request a continuing education program to come to your community, thanks to the Young Lawyers section of the Missouri Bar featuring the Project film. You can do all of that at Missouri Lawyers Help. That's all one word, MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of other information on various legal topics at that same site. The site provides you with this information to help you better understand the law because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances.
0: Nothing further.
2: You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of The Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
3: And I'm Farrah Fight.
2: Thanks for being with us.
3: Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of The Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.